0: Acts chapter four, if you're there, say amen. Amen. So far in our study of the book of Acts, the church, I think you'd agree, has experienced some really exciting days. I mean, just think back to the last few chapters in Acts chapter one, Jesus taught them for for many days about the kingdom and uh, about the great commission. and, And then he said, listen, you guys have a responsibility and that's to take the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. And then Jesus left, went back to heaven. And that overwhelmed the disciples. They had a lot to organize and a lot to do. And they needed some help doing it. And so God said, well, I'll give you help. I'll give you the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. And he filled them with the Holy Spirit. So much so that Peter preached a a Bible message, a gospel message on the name of Jesus. And 3,000 people responded in faith and in repentance. They got baptized. Because saved people get baptized. Baptized. Then they got added to the church because saved baptized people become committed to a local church. And then they were radically committed and involved in the church because, well, that's what followers of Christ do. They prioritize their life around the work of God, not the other way around. In Acts 3, Pastor Tanner preached about Peter and John going to where the people were at the temple and healing a lame man on the way and it caused this huge scene and Peter took the opportunity under the uh, feeling of the Holy Spirit, of course, to preach the gospel again, and 5,000 people believed. Would you agree? These are exciting times right now for the early church. But we get to chapter 4, and we're going to see for the first time that the church faces opposition. In fact, this chapter starts a string of opposition and persecution for the church that we'll see continue through chapter 4, 5, 7, 8, and 12. And the people persecuting these apostles were the same Jewish leaders that persecuted Jesus. I was watching my beloved Oklahoma Sooners get beat yesterday in much depression. At the start of the second half, the commentator said this, caught my attention. Adversity introduces a football player to himself. That's what he said. Adversity introduces a football player to himself, That made me think of the message today. I believe that opposition introduces a believer to himself. Opposition doesn't just build character, courage, and conviction. It reveals whether or not we have it. And what we're going to see is that the uh, opposition the apostles faced revealed the deep level of courage and conviction they had already developed through Christ and with the help of the Holy Spirit. The sermon today will be divided simply into two sections. Number one, the reality of opposition. Number two, the response to opposition. Let's get after it. Look at verses 1 through 4 of Acts chapter 4. And as they spake unto the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them, put them in hold unto the next day, for it was now eventide. How be it? And I love this. Even though opposition came, people were still saved. Many of them, which heard the word believed and the number of the men was about 5,000. So let's talk about this because this sets the scene. Verse one tells us that opposition, the opposition was threefold. It came from the priest. It came from the captain of the temple and it came from the Sadducees. Who were they? Well, the priests were the ones who conducted the evening sacrifice at the temple. They would have been divided into about 24 different groups and then selected randomly to serve at their given time. So so the priests, they lived for this moment. They, they, They anticipated getting their chance to serve at the temple. And so when Peter and John caused a disturbance, well, that ticked them off because that interrupted their time to serve. We've got the captain of the temple. That would have been the head of the temple police force. It was composed of Levites. The, 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 the temple, or, or, or the, the captain of the temple, was, was second in rank only to the high priest. And he was basically responsible for maintaining order in the temple ground. So he was grieved by this disturbance. Now, you know, this is no small disturbance, right? 5,000 people or so? That's a big group. Then we got the Sadducees, one of the four groups that made up the first century Judaism. They were theological liberals. They only believed in the written law, the Torah. They didn't believe in hell, didn't, didn't, didn't believe in uh, heaven, uh, didn't believe in the resurrection. Get this, they believed when somebody died, well, that was the end. That's why the Sadducees were sad, you see. My dad taught me that one, and his dad taught him that one, and his dad taught him that one. It's a long-standing dad joke. Verse 2 says that, that these three groups of people were grieved because the apostles preached about the resurrection through Jesus Christ. Remember, the Jewish leaders had executed Jesus as a blasphemer and now the apostles were boldly proclaiming him as the resurrected Messiah. They no doubt viewed that as a direct attack on their authority. So, as we read, they arrested Peter and John. They put them in jail through the night. Until they can convene the Sanhedrin for the trial the next day. I'll talk about the Sanhedrin here in just a few moments. But these first four verses not only set the scene for our text. But they teach us about the reality of opposition. When the gospel is preached. When when, when the church bears the name of Jesus to a lost world. when, When a Christian stands for truth. Hear me. They will be opposed. That's the reality. Now, I know this looks different for us in the West, especially those of us in the United States of America, than it did for the apostles. Tradition tells us that all the apostles, except maybe John, were martyred for their faith. In fact, during the Roman persecutions of the first three centuries, Christians were thrown to wild animals. Christians were crucified. uh, Turned into human torches. I mean, just just treated in all kinds of cruel ways. And I want to praise God that that I don't assume that in my lifetime I'll be treated that way. I'm going to praise God for that. Maybe I will, but but I don't assume I will. However, I do think that opposition still comes to believers in a free country who preach the gospel and stand for the truth of the Bible. And that will only increase the longer that we live in the last days. I, I began to think, how does that show up? Well, I think there's a couple dominant ideologies in our country right now that have caught traction and and, and they're causing increasing opposition for Bible believers. I'm talking about the ideologies of of progressivism and individualism. Progressivism is this broad term that that encompasses a number of different ideologies and and beliefs and, and theories, including unbiblical views on marriage and sexuality and gender identity, and medical ethics. Those who hold to these views tend to oppose religion in general, but but for sure Christianity in particular for what they would see as its outdated views on these matters. I read where historian Carl Truman says that progressive movements seek to overthrow Christian ethics. Because such ethics, he says, I quote, represent repressive sexual codes that destroy individual freedom and individual identity. See, tolerance is no longer held to be sufficient. You understand that? A Christian may hold the personal view, for example, that homosexuality is sinful. And at the same time, that Christian may genuinely feel no animosity toward gay people. Or wish to criminalize their behavior. Yet such a stance is nowhere near good enough for today's progressives. You can no longer just tolerate their belief, but now you have to solidify their belief as right, as acceptable, as normal. And if you don't, you're viewed as oppressive. So even if we preach the truth in love, and by the way, we should. And even if we don't propagate hate toward those who live in contradiction of the Bible's teaching, and we shouldn't. If we don't solidify it as acceptable, there's a chance we'll be viewed by some as bigots and hateful. On top of that, there's individualism. It's evolved into this thinking that, well, you can be whoever you want. You can do whatever you want. And you should be allowed to live according to your own subjective truth. This is why there's a battle today over pronouns. An individualist, in this sense, is claiming that if they want to have a sex change, then they should be allowed to not just have a sex change, but demand that everyone else comply with their sex change and use the pronoun they want them to use. And if you don't, you're oppressing them. You're picking on them. You don't have to be hateful to them at all. But if you choose not to use their preferred pronoun, then you are not going along with them, which means you're a bigot. You're not allowing them to be the individual they want to be. I could go on, but my point is to say that though we're in a free country and and we all came to church today without fear of punishment, as we preach the gospel, as we preach the repentance of sin, as we stand on the truth of scripture and even do so with love, we'll be opposed. Sometimes subtly, sometimes aggressively. Even our own family members When we come to faith and then try to share our faith with them, if they're of a different denominational tradition that doesn't teach salvation by grace alone and they hear that we're going to the Baptist church, then they might feel like we've turned our back on them entirely. We got baptized? They might feel like the family means nothing to them Anymore. And so you might hear over time sarcastic remarks, condescending remarks. You might sense a growing distance between you and the people you love the most just because you've given your life to follow Christ and you've invited them to do the same. We shouldn't be surprised by opposition. But hear me, we shouldn't be opposed because we're being hateful in our stand either. Or we're being antagonistic in our approach. Or argumentative. I really believe some Christians think that there's an extra crown in heaven for how many arguments they went on Facebook. If anything, you're not going to even get a crown because of that. We ought to speak the truth in wisdom, friend. And love. However, even if you do that today, relative truth has exploded. And, and, and absolute truth is diminished. And even if you're a loving person, like me and my wife have family members on her side that live a total contradictory life to the, to the Bible. And we have never once been hateful, never once called them out, never once said, nope, not showing up to your house, never once done that. But because, it grew to the point where because we wouldn't say, it's okay, it's fine. Then all of a sudden they think we're hateful. That will come. That opposition will come. So here's the question of the text. How do we respond when it does? What do we do when we're opposed? Well, the apostles set a good example for us. Let's talk about the response to opposition with our time left. Number one, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Let's look at verse 5. And it came to pass on the morrow... That their rulers and elders and scribes, and Annas the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power, or by what name have ye done this? Watch this next phrase. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them. So here's the situation that Peter was in. He was standing before the Sanhedrin. I've always called it, by the way, Sanhedrin, but I've, I'm learning it's pronounced the Sanhedrin. I don't know which one it is. Ask Pastor David. He'll know. The Sanhedrin was made up, they say, of about 71 individuals. They were basically the ruling body of the nation, the Supreme Court, if you will. They, they met at a place called the Hall of Hewn Stone. When they brought Peter and John before him, they na- demanded to know by what power or by what name the apostles has healed this lame man. Why is that? Well, a name represented authority. The question implied that Peter and John were rebels since the Sanhedrin didn't grant them authority to act. Now, this is a pressure filled moment for Peter and John. In fact, wouldn't you think it would be somewhat deja vu for Peter specifically? Not too long ago, he had been on trial with just one girl, a damsel girl he didn't even know, around a fire. Are you a follower of Christ, Peter? And he radically denied it, even cursed Christ. Now he's in the same position again, but this time, not with just a girl. This time, in front of the Supreme Court. What we're going to see, as we work through this text this morning, is that Peter thrived under this pressure. He stood his ground. He defended the resurrection of Christ. He bore the name of Jesus with boldness. Question. What made the difference? A few months ago, he couldn't even stand up to one girl. Now he's standing boldly in front of the Supreme Court of the nation of Israel. What made the difference? The difference was that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. That sure helped him a lot. And get this, Peter wasn't filled with the Spirit because he said some lengthy prayer. Or he had some kind of emotional experience where he went to church and the worship team got up and and he started feeling a certain way and that, oh yeah, now I'm filled with the Spirit. I got it, I got it, I can feel it, I'm ready to go now. There was no hype man in Peter's life. He was filled with the Spirit, number one, because in chapter two, the Holy Spirit indwelt him. And and by the way, that's how we are filled with the Spirit initially as Christians. We get saved. When you get saved, you are automatically indwelt with a third person of the Godhead. God the Holy Spirit. You are filled with the Spirit when after salvation, you yield yourself to the Spirit. You say yes to the Spirit. You yield yourself to God's control in your life. Yielding to God's control releases God's power. This is how we handle opposition. We make sure that we're filled with the Spirit by daily yielding ourselves to the Lord. It's how our church should handle opposition. When, 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 when it comes our way, we make sure that we're a Spirit-filled church by yielding ourselves corporally to the Word of God. Why is that important? Because there are things called the fruit of the Spirit. And it's the fruit of the Spirit that needs to come out of believers during times of opposition. Many times, it's the opposite. It's the fruits of the flesh that come out of Christians during times of opposition. They get hateful, and they get defensive, and they get opinionated, and they get argumentative, or they get scared. They get fearful, but God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power and love and a sound mind. Christian, you ought to, when you're not facing opposition, you ought to be filled with the spirit so that when opposition comes, what will bear fruit is that of the spirit and not of the flesh. It's foundational to surviving persecution or or opposition at any level. Okay, number two. Here's what you do to handle opposition. Be aggressive in seizing opportunities. Okay, let's continue to study. Chapter, Verse 8 through verse 12. Let's read it together. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them... Now watch what he says. Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed to the impotent man by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel, but by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him that this man stand here before you whole... This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Instead of being frightened into silence or compromise, Peter went on the offensive. He he began, we read it in verse 8, by indicting the Sanhedrin for actually having the audacity to arrest them for healing a sick guy. I mean, seriously, is it really a crime to heal a lame man? He turned the tables on them and subtly accused them of injustice. Brilliant. And then since they demanded to know by what name they healed the lame man, well, Peter told them. And I want you to hear this. He didn't delete things that he knew would offend the Sanhedrin. He said, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but God raised from the dead. That's the name by which this lame man now walks. In saying this, you know what Peter's doing? He is boldly accusing them of execution. Peter refused to compromise the gospel by saying, oh, that's going to offend them a little bit. I don't think he was trying to offend them. I don't think he was being antagonistic. I think he was speaking out of conviction. And he knew his conviction said, well, I've got to talk about Jesus right now. And he went even further. Peter did what he did at Pentecost during his sermon. He turned to the Old Testament scriptures to make his case. He quoted Psalms 118 verse 22 and applied it to uh, the Supreme Court's, the Sanhedrin's rejection of Jesus. He he said Jesus was the stone that the builders or, or the spiritual leaders of the nation of Israel had rejected. But although they rejected him, God made him the very cornerstone of the church through his resurrection and exaltation. This is some good preaching by Peter. And then to close, Peter gave an invitation. He invited them to repent and embrace Jesus Christ, not as one of the ways to heaven. Not as one of the options for eternal life. As the only way to salvation. He was so exclusive that he says, there is salvation in no other but Jesus Christ. And you might think, well, that's not very loving to say it's just, there's just one way to heaven. I would say it's very unloving to say there's more than one. Here's the point. The attempt by the Sanhedrin to, 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 to suppress the apostles' teaching had given them this priceless opportunity To preach. And they boldly seized that opportunity to preach to the most powerful men in the land. That's how to handle opposition. Face it with the boldest proclamation of the truth. Find opportunities in the midst of opposition. Did you hear me? Find opportunities in the midst of opposition. Unfortunately, even after such a clear message, the Sanhedrin didn't believe, though. But they were still impressed. I think my favorite verse in all chapter 4 comes right here in verse 13. Such a human moment. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John. And perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men. They marveled. And they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. The, the, The religious rulers, watch here. They were impressed that these common fishermen who weren't trained in rabbinical school. They weren't professional theologians, yet they could argue so effectively from the scriptures. They were so impressed that they came to the conclusion that the only explanation to uh, describe this was that these men had been with Jesus. Why do they say that? Because they remembered the authority with which Jesus spoke. And now, now they, they, they look at these men and they're like, wow, they resemble Jesus. They're speaking with the same authority. They're they're speaking with the same conviction, the same decisiveness, the same boldness. They are truly his disciples. In other words, they were bold and eloquent because they had personally followed Jesus and had received from Jesus for a number of years some amazing teaching from Scripture. I love the lesson this teaches. God can effectively use anyone, even the uneducated, even the, 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 the ordinary person who will listen to and follow his son. Tony Meredith said God can use the PhDs like Paul and the GEDs like Peter, the doctors like Luke, and the tax collectors like Matthew. Praise God for his wonderful grace. And here's the challenge for us because God is willing to use anybody that gives their life to Him, we better be ready for the opportunities when they come. Amen. What do we have to get ready? The Scriptures. You don't have to be a theologian, you do have the Holy Spirit of God. But understand that the Apostles almost always referenced back to the Scriptures. Get this? We can't just say, well, the Holy Spirit will tell me what to say when I'm supposed to say it, He'll give you the boldness. He'll give you wisdom. But you know what you need? You need to know the Bible. You need to get with Jesus. You need to open up this book for yourself every single day. And you do not have to be a professional theologian to share your faith. You do not have to be able to answer every question from Scripture to share your faith. But you need to know how to articulate the Gospel, not by way of your personal story, but by way of the New Testament Scriptures. So get ready and then seize the opportunity. Number three. When opposition comes our way, we should be obedient to God at all costs. Verse 14. Look at this. Are you still with me today? And beholding the man which was healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For that indeed a notable miracle has been done by them is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in his name. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. This just keeps getting better. See, the unexpected boldness of these Unlearned and ignorant men, combined with the presence of this healed lame man standing beside them, put the Sanhedrin in this impossible position. They couldn't say a word. Now, this is amazing because Jesus prophesied that this would actually happen. Do you know that? Look at this verse on the screen, Luke 21 15. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay nor resist. Now it's happening. The Sanhedrin has no idea what to say or do. So they send Peter and John into holding until they could figure it out. I want you to get this. The Sanhedrin was living, reliving, I should say, its worst nightmare. See, they had executed Jesus for claiming to be the Messiah. And now Jesus' followers were going everywhere, repeating those claims. And worse They had just performed a noteworthy miracle to authenticate their claim. The Sanhedrin was speechless. All they knew was they had to keep the apostles from propagating this. So they resorted to intimidation and threats. Don't speak anymore in the name of Jesus or else. And I love the apostles' response. Do you see that? Nope. Can't do it. Sorry. We can't shut up. We can't help but speak about the things we've seen and heard regarding our Savior. It's changed our life. It's turned us upside down. It's given us a hope. It's given us a future. You know, we speak boldly about what we believe deeply. Did you know that? We speak boldly about what we believe deeply. Things that you're passionate about, you like to talk about. You know was on the center of these apostles' hearts right now? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. They believed it. They were no longer wavering on whether he was the son of God, whether he came down to earth to, to establish this, this earthly kingdom which they struggled with all through the Gospels. No, they had figured it out now. Jesus is a son of God. He's counting on us to, to declare his name boldly to a lost world and they couldn't help but, sh- but speak. Now, I'm not advocating at all from this text for an anti-government approach to life. Smaller government would be nice. But it's clearly a biblical principle that believers are to obey their government. Peter, this same guy actually writes the epistles, 1st, 2nd Peter. He actually writes and tells us to obey the government as we can. And, and, And the apostle Paul teaches the same thing, Romans 13. However, watch this. The reaction of Peter and John marks the limits of that obedience. They would gladly obey if they could do so without disobeying their sovereign Lord. But when God's commands conflict with those of the government, the government must be disobeyed. Now, to balance that out, we need to understand that Peter and John, um, though they refused to obey the Sanhedrin, they, they still treated them with respect. They didn't argue with them, they didn't pretend to submit and then go and disobey behind their back. They were honest, they were respectful and just say we we're going to speak we can't help but speak and this is the example for our lives today if opposition ever places you in a position to compromise the clear teaching of the word of god you ought to with grace and boldness and respect always obey the word of god i've known christians and i've seen them live life among lost co-workers And lost friends and lost family members. And I've watched as people they truly love just wear them down. They wear them down over time. You go to church every Sunday? Why don't you say that anymore? Why don't you do that anymore? Why don't you show up to this anymore? Why don't you joke around about that anymore? And I know there's got to be some, some believers in this congregation right now. And you're facing that kind of pattern in your life. You're getting worn down. And, and, and you're starting to get tempted in a very real way to compromise. Because you're just sick and tired of being the odd man out. You're sick and tired of, of, of being distant. You're, you're sick and tired of people saying passive aggressive remarks about you. You're sick and tired of... of uh, with, with the family members you were once close to before you came to Christ and now they, you're not as close anymore and it's just where if that's you don't compromise you listen Jesus said in this world you will have tribulation they persecuted me they're going to persecute you don't it's not a badge of honor that you're getting persecuted it's not a badge of honor that you're being opposed we don't get set a trophy on our thing Said, yep I'm living the Christian life in such a way where I get the opposition trophy today Nobody wants that. But if it comes, you endure. You stay faithful. You obey. Don't even let people that you love a lot wear you down. You'll answer to Christ for that. Let me give you another one. When we face opposition, we should be committed to fellowship. Verse 23. And being let go, they went to their own company. And reported all the chief priests and elders had said unto them. I want to talk to you for a second about this because we do live in a different day and age. The reason why the disciples, apostles, were so radically committed to fellowship, like daily fellowship with their church, mainly was because of the necessity of it. Like they had to. Listen, they just stood in front of the Sanhedrin. They need to go get some love. They need to get some support. They need, they, there was a mutual dependence upon other Christians in the early church because being a Christian was super, super, super difficult. And I think that's why it's so hard sometimes in churches like ours to, to, to get this type of brotherhood sometimes. And this, like, this need... Oh man, I've got to get with my church. I've got to get to know my church. I, I've got to get relationships to my church. It, it, it's like why so many people are content to come into church and leave, come into church and leave, come into church and leave. Here's why. Because we don't face the persecution they faced. And, and, and it's almost like we, we think we don't need mutual dependence upon our church. Because we just don't feel it like they felt it. We don't have that urgent need. But can, can I remind you? That, that you should probably think about a little different. Be, because what about when opposition does come unexpectedly in your life? And when you don't have any relationships formed in the church? Now, I, I know you can come and go right now and stay kind of distant because you got your family and you, maybe some co workers sprinkled here and there. You got, you got your tribe. But when you really need fellowship, koin, koinonia, when, when, when you need that partnership. That mutual dependence and mutual support from from Christians that you go to church with. When you need that and you don't know anybody, you might not get it. Charles Swindoll put it this way. Put that on the screen. Wow, Bryce. Friendships must be cultivated. They don't automatically occur when calamity strikes. And I've never heard of a a -a rent-a-friend business either. Do you get that? Back in the day, they had ladies that fell to the bottom of the steps and they had these life alert bracelets. I'm falling and I can't get up. Remember those commercials? In the Christian life, there aren't life alert bracelets. There's not a -a -a rent-a-friend, rent-a-church. There's not a -a rent-a-church business. You need to be cultivating friendships while you're still on your feet. So that if the world, the flesh of the devil, puts you on your back, you have somebody. Yeah, it's very, very important. I think the church gets blamed a lot. Well, nobody's my friend, and no, well, you gotta be involved. You gotta be in the trenches, you gotta be friendly, you can't be annoying. Okay, you got you gotta be a normal person. Like, just let organically relationships happen, right? Like, get in the trenches with people. But, but I think when life goes bad and then people expect the church to come, it's like, well, you've not been coming for fellowship. And so when you don't come for fellowship, then don't expect to be able to rent it. I hope that as a pastor, I can graciously be here for you, even if you're not here for me. I want to. The church exists to be a hospital for sinners, right? I want to help you. I want to love on you. But the entitlement for fellowship, when it hasn't been cultivated before the opposition... Shouldn't be there. Get close with your church now. Okay, let me give you another one. Be thankful. Be thankful. They didn't go into their, their, their crowd, their tribe, their church, and say, man, we're living such a terrible life, man. This stinks. We should have never given our life to Jesus. They're exhilarated. You know why? They just preached the name of Jesus to the most powerful court in the land. These guys are Stoked. Look at verse 24. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God. We sang about that earlier. Which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is. Time out. You know what they're thankful for right off the bat? They're thankful for the sovereignty of God. Lord, sovereign Lord, you're still in control. We know we just got threatened by the Sanhedrin. We know we just got told to shut up. We know they want to run us out of town. But we also know you're still in control. And we want to let you know we're thankful for that. Verse 25. And who by the mouth of thy servant David has said. Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus. Whom thou hast anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand. And thy counsel determined before to be done. They're thankful for God's sovereignty, but they're, they're also thankful that God allows them to be part of his redemptive, eternal plan. Get what I'm saying? David, they quoted David. He said this would happen. This is part of your plan. This happened to Jesus. He told us this would happen to us. It's part of your plan. And we just want to thank you right now that though we we don't like the opposition and we didn't expect it to come this quick, we want you to know we're thankful you're in control and we're thankful that in spite of the opposition, you let us be a part of your redemptive plan for the world. When is the last time after opposition you thank God? God, I don't like this and I didn't expect it to come. Just because I'm serving you, I, I guess I thought more. But Lord, I want to thank you that you're still in control. You're still God. You're still faithful. I don't know how many Christians I've talked to that literally thought when they gave their lives to Jesus, life gets easier. New Christians, if you're in here, new Christian, you've been baptized recently, you listen closely. When you give your life to Jesus, you are never promised that your life gets easier. You're swimming upstream now. You're pedaling against the wind now. The devil's here to resist you now. You're on team Jesus now. You're wearing his jersey. You got his message. You carry his Bible, his Holy Spirit inside of you. So don't expect for life to get easier because you're got follow. Because you a follower of Christ. If you're doing it right, life is going to get harder in some ways. But understand that at the end of the day, you can still go to your prayer closet, get on your knees, and thank God he's still God. And that he's made you a part of his redemptive plan for the world. Wow, what a privilege. Let me give you one more and we'll go home. Be desirous of greater boldness. I love how this ends. Verse 29. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word. By stretching forth thine hand to heal. that signs and wonders may be done by the name of the holy child Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And they spake the word of God with boldness. Their praise turned into petition. Because they knew this. They needed greater boldness than, than, than what they were fearful of in regards to their enemies' threats. And God answered their prayer immediately. This is an amazing end uh, to our message today because it shows us that this first initial trial, this, this, this first initial opposition that the church faced, they thrived. They did well. The apostles could have buckled. They could have given up. They could have got mad at God. They could have said, this is not what we signed up for. But you know what they did? They ran to their prayer prayer team, prayer meeting. And they said, it's only going to get harder from here. So give us more boldness. We're not quitting. But God, we know that in us, there's no way we can do this any longer. I think we think like Peter and John were like supermen. Like they they weren't even shaken at all. They weren't nervous while they were being put in the hold and wondering what the Sanhedrin was going to do with them. You understand if you pinched Peter, it still hurt? He was a dude, man. He was just a, a normal guy. So you've got to understand that when they said, God, give us more boldness, that's exactly what they meant. We cannot do this on our own. It's too big. It's too scary. It's daunting. And so they said, give us more boldness. Because the call that God had placed on their life was, the, was greater than the fear the world was putting into their life you might be a fearful christian today but i hope that your opposition will drive you to a deeper dependence on god and a hunger to be even more bold because you understand as a follower of christ quitting is not an option and if you're in that position today you come and you say god give me greater boldness because i can't do this by myself pretty amazing uh Lesson that we learned from the apostles, isn't it? How do we handle opposition? And he teaches us all those ways that we talked about. But you stand here.